Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. For a long time, I've wondered why some companies succeed and some don't. Why one can rise to be synonymous with an industry while many of the most creative on the planet toil away in relative obscurity. I'm Jeff Eccles and I invite you to join me for the Build Your Brand podcast. From Gable Media, creators of the Entree Architect podcast, this is the podcast mini-series where I explore how the best brands in the world think differently and act differently on their way to becoming the best and what you can learn from them because no matter the size, the journey is the same. This season, I'll open the cowl and look inside Southwest Airlines to see what makes them tick and what architects can learn from an airline that started with a simple purpose that's grown into a cult-like dedication to what matters most. Well, at first, the board wanted to upgrade and change the way they did things. They even voted to put some of these things in place, but Herb Kelleher overruled them. He knew that Southwest couldn't do the things they did. They couldn't give people the freedom to fly in the same way if they made these changes. He also knew the airline industry really well and knew that first-class service with bargain basement prices wouldn't work. When we started out, we said, we're going to have a special niche in the industry. And if we're going to make it a really distinctive niche, we have to do things innovatively. And so we did. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a really big company that does something completely different from what I do. And they've got a really big budget to boot. Here's a hint. 
Even if you don't have a half billion dollar marketing budget, some of the things that companies like Southwest Airlines do to rise to the top are both free and priceless. Join me in March as I start out on my Build Your Brand journey by exploring Southwest Airlines' origin story and uncovering the one simple idea that changed everything and allowed you to be, as Southwest puts it, You are now free to move about the country. Our first new show from Gable Media, Build Your Brand Podcast, is coming this March. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 311, How Small Firm Architects will lead the profession to thrive. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more, all free at RCAT.com. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto, easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses just like ours. Gregory Burke, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. I'm uh, glad to be here with you. It's great to have you here. You're a longtime friend uh, personally and to the community, and so it's great to have you here. Let me introduce you to the people who don't know who you are. Uh, Greg Burke is a principal architect and president at uh, Gregory John Burke Architect, PA, located in Vero Beach, uh, not California, wrong coast. You're in (laughs) Florida. Um, His firm and the large prestigious firms he formerly worked with have served clients from small families to Fortune 500 companies. Uh, Projects where he served as designer or project manager total more than 10 million square feet and added an adjusted value of just over $2 billion. So a little bit of work. Uh, He's graduated, um, he's a graduate of The Ohio State, and I see that's how the football players say it, so I'm gonna say The (laughs) Ohio State University's Knowlton, is it Knowlton, is that? Yes, Knowlton yes, School of Architecture, and he was elevated to the College of Fellows in 2018 at the AIA uh, National for his leadership in advocacy, uh, diversity, and mentorship. So, Greg is a is a great mentor. He's a great leader. Um, he's a he's a contributor over at our Entree Architects Facebook group every day. He's he's helping people over there, and so uh, it's clearly part of your passion, Greg, to. Uh, be part of this profession. You love this profession. You want this profession to grow and 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 become a better better profession. Um, long before I knew who you were, uh, you were you were um, on my radar screen because you were out there, you know, advocating and contributing to the to the profession. So, first of all, before we start, thank you, thank you for that for your contribution and your uh, and your your commitment to the profession. Thanks. Um, let's start off with your, with your origin story. Go back as far as you want to go back. Tell us when oh. you discover architecture, what inspired you to become an architect, and give us that story uh, to where you are today. 
Sure. Uh, kind of the brief, the brief side. Um, I was born with uh, with a birth defect, uh, with two fingers missing from each hand and two toes from each foot. My mother got me uh, to hold a pencil when I was three years old, and we started with dot to dots. And back, you know, with us old guys, that's how we used to draw. So I learned how to draw and count at the, basically at the age of three, um, and really didn't do much. I did a lot of drawing as a kid. And always loved it. Um, and then when I got into high school, I was a football player. And my sophomore year, I needed a course that was going to be somewhat easy. So the guidance counselor said, uh, take mechanical drawing. You'll love it. You get to draw. There's no homework and you get the color. And I said, oh, right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I got really interested in that. And the funny thing was the uh, first person that was teaching that class was an 86-year-old Catholic nun. Uh, so it was really a strange way to start off. Uh, I had never really heard much about architecture in the family that I grew up, even though my uh, uh, my father had two clients. He was an insurance agent who were architects, but uh, I really didn't know much about it. But from that that drawing point on, I learned how to um, uh, I learned how to draw and, and do the things that I needed to do um, to start my way into it. And then, uh, I got a two year degree, um, in architectural and structural drafting technology, uh, near my hometown, in Northeast Ohio, went to Ohio state. I, I'm, I'm not one of those who says the, I don't think I'm, <laughs> unless, unless I'm, I'm, I'm responding to somebody else. I uh, went to Ohio state. Uh, I started working in offices at 18 and got to design my first building at 18. And strangely enough, it's still standing. So that was kind of the impetus. And from then on, uh, after graduating from Ohio State, I went to work for uh, Gensler in Houston. And that's where some of the big stuff started working. And uh, I worked, I've worked in almost every state east of the Mississippi. I heard done projects in every state. I haven't lived in every one, but uh, that's been pretty much uh, the start of my career. And what are you, what are you doing now? Well, right now we've got, uh, I'm, I'm operating right at the moment as a sole practitioner. We've gone anywhere from one to five people at any one uh, point in time. Uh, before the economy collapsed, we had five people and we were billing about three quarters of a million dollars. So for a five person firm, that's pretty good. Um, we're, we're doing all different types of projects. Uh, we had a hundred million dollar master plan with uh, nine buildings on the boards uh, we're doing a renovation of a historic uh, ho resort hotel on on the uh, ocean here in Vero Beach, uh, renovating some of the rooms. So we we do a little bit of everything. Vero Beach is kind of a unique place. Um, I'm they kind of pigeonhole architects here. You're either a commercial architect, or you're a residential. You don't do both, but I do. Um, so you know the commercial side, there isn't a tremendous amount. Although it's starting to change, we are starting to see more commercial work here. Uh, most of my work has been dealing with the surrounding counties, um, and I do a lot of uh, collaboration with other architects in the area. We get uh, some of the residential guys get commercial work that they really can't do or don't want to do, and they ask me in to uh, support them on it. So they do the design, and I generally go from DD uh, through CDs with them, uh, which can be kind of fun. We did a couple of projects that way in, uh, in the Bahamas. I worked on a 20,000-square-foot house. Um, down in South Florida, and we're getting ready to start one with a uh, with a very talented designer who does primarily residential work. But we're going to do a little art gallery with a uh, art school. So it, it, it's a real mix of uh, uh, types of projects. We try to be selective in what we pick uh, to do, uh, and you know, and, and pick pick projects that are going to have you know a little meat on the bones, uh, so to speak. Yeah. 
Yep. You're, you're, you're like I said in the introduction, you are, um, a, passionate about the profession. You yes. have, you have a clear, uh, I, ideas and opinions about, uh, the way the profession is currently run, the history of the profession, where we're going, whenever that conversation pops up in, uh, the Facebook group, um, you're, you're always on that list, you know, <laughs> talking and, and very often you and I have a very similar point of view that I've said in the past that, that it's not the AIA's responsibility to, to fix some of the problems that we have. It's our individual responsibilities. Um, it, it, and if we don't shift our mindset to that, where everybody, every architect is responsible for succeeding themselves, first of all, to being, becoming a successful architect financially and from a design point of view, uh, that will contribute to the profession at large. But also if we sort of um, uh, leave it to the profession to to tell our story and to and to uh, fix some of the problems that we have, we're going to be waiting a long time. And so, um, I wanted to have that conversation with you, Greg, about about the 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 value of an architect, quote unquote. That's a, com- a a topic that comes up all the time, and and what is the responsibility of the larger organizations, the AIA and and, and the chapters of the organizations, and what is the responsibility of the individual architect? Yeah, uh, you know, it's tough for the AIA at a national level. Um, I think we're the strongest um, support and um, moving, helping us to move forward as a profession comes from is from your local and state organizations. We change officers every year. That makes consistency a very uh, tough point. And consistency is something that I think the profession sometimes lacks. Um, you know, you go up and down. A lot of that has to do with the way we sell ourselves and, and what you brought up about value. Um, an architect has got to be able to uh, to explain to a client, whether it's in their proposals. Uh, and I'd always recommend you have a couple of conversations with a client before you actually give them a proposal for the work. Get to know them a little bit. Find out what they want. Uh, learn something about if it's a commercial project, learn something about their business, how the business operates, what their goals are. And if, if you're doing a single family house, then, you know, spend a little bit of time with the with the clients that you're going to be dealing with. Find out exactly how they live their, their lives. You may have to ask some personal questions at a time, but, you know, you, you let them know that you're just doing that so you can get a good understanding of how they live and how the, how the house is supposed to operate. You sell that and you tell them you're not going to get that out of a contractor. You know, a contractor is going to build your house. He's going to build your house. He's going to take a set of plans. You know, a lot of, you know, we've got a lot of good contractors in, in, in the United States that recognize the value of having an architect on board and would not do a project without an architect. And then we have a lot of other ones who don't operate that way. And this is where you really have got to come in and, and try to make a sale. I mean, I, like every other architect, has probably lost a project or two, especially a residential project, um, to someone who says, well, you know, the builder will get a draftsman. I said, okay. You know, when, when when you run that gamut and you have a problem, come back and see me. And some do. Um, so I think that, you know, from a value standpoint, you've got to be able to show that you can do things better uh, than anybody else that you're competing with, whether it's another architect or a contractor, whoever you're going up against, is that here are the things that I can bring to the table. This is what makes me different and 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 helps you out 
in what your final goals are. I, I'm here to listen to you. Yes, I'm an architect. I'm going to direct you because that's what I'm trained to do. Um, in the end, it's your, it's your money. You have got to trust me that I'm going to use your money in the, in the right way. Um, so I think that, you know, you really have to, you have to boil it down to uh, the things that you do best. And, this, and then this transfers over to, um, you know, the things that happen at AIA. Uh, the fact that you have um, the leadership change every year, and it's the same thing, well, not necessarily local levels. A lot of local levels are now putting presidents in place for two and three years. Uh, I know AIA Orlando keeps their president in place for three years, which now you're starting to get a little bit of consistency and you can get um, a little more direction moving forward. And let's face it, the, the profession is going through a lot of change right now. Um, I, I do expert witness work in addition to the other types of, you know, design work I do. And we're seeing a lot of lawsuits coming out of uh, BIM-related uh, projects. If you really don't know how to use BIM, you don't know how to plan for it, I'll guarantee you're going to end up in court. Um, so you've got to be able to understand the tools that you're using. And the tools now are not the same as the tools when I was a kid starting out. And, you know, Everybody wants AIA to do it for them, but leadership comes from you. You've got to be the one who steps up. You've got to be the one who takes responsibility. Um, you've got to be the one who can show the way. Um, you can't. Uh, you can't get anywhere. The you know, old Chinese proverb that a man can never arrive at his destination if he doesn't know where he's going. So you've got to have a plan. And you know, I know that in, in several of your podcasts. You've talked about planning and uh, whether it's financial planning or how to how to set up your office or any of those types of things. All of that stuff starts with the individual. And the more that we can do that and the more that we can uh, put ourselves on a, on a proper path and direction, we'll start to bring the profession back to where it should be. You know, we've we've been losing ground since the 60s. And uh, which is, I basically started that that architect or mechanical drawing course in 1969 or 70, and uh, you know I can remember seeing a, a, a Progressive Architecture magazine cover with two men in suits on the cover saying the rise of the construction manager. <laughs> and yeah. since yeah. those days, since those days we've been we've been working ourselves backwards. You know, it's it's almost. Because of what we let happen, um, you know, when I worked for Art Gensler, you know, they told me the, the way he got to be as big as he is, is that when everybody was asking for a nickel, he was asking for a quarter. And that quarter was the thing that ended up moving him and it helped establish his value. Now, he did it because he hired very smart people and let them do their jobs. Uh, Art always surrounded himself with really intelligent folks. And you really... That that kind of thought, you know, we've got a race to the bottom right at the moment. Everybody wants to undercut undercut each other. That's not helping the profession. In fact, that's degrading it. And the leadership falls out when you do that. You know, you're not you're not setting yourself up a leader. You know, everybody has to work. Everybody has to make money to live and all those types of things. But there's a lot of work out there, and you just have to pound the pavement to to do it. Um, uh, I think that. Uh, you know, just hard work 
still is still required. And, yeah, you know, as yeah. much as we'd like this to be an eight hour a day profession, that's it. It's really not that, you know, put your eight hours in the office, but use a couple hours every other day, every three days, whatever, to do a little socializing and meet people. Um, that's where leadership is going to come from. People will get to know you, um, get to know that you have a brain, uh, get to, um, uh, see that you think you think in a problem solving way and they will need that help that will help strengthen your value not only as an architect but as a person who can help the community so those types of things you know starting from a grassroots level and and working your way forward um, by meeting people and getting involved will will help uh, help drive the profession and help set our value greg when when the topic of of the value of an architect comes up and we're, we're having those conversations out in the community. Um, often we, we talk about how the AIA is, is at the national level. They, they're, they're either doing a new uh, ad campaign or they're trying to uh, identify what architects do, the, the value of the architects. Um, and you get two sides. You say, well, they're not doing it enough. Um, there's others that say that they shouldn't be doing that at all. Uh, what, what is your thought on that? Does does when they when they put themselves in that position of trying to define who we are as architects, and that's a very broad range <laughs> of people because we do lots of different things and, and lots of different responsibilities, and so that's at a national level, this is what we are is a difficult thing to do. Do you think those those advertising campaigns are effective, um, or do you think they're actually hurting the the, the cause? Well, to a certain extent, I think they hurt because uh, it's a lot of it is archie speak. And let's face it, the way we as architects talk to each other is not the way we should be talking to the general public. They don't understand. They're not educated as architects. How could they understand? Um, the last, the I Look Up campaign, although I thought it was very lofty and it looked really sleek and they showed a lot of stuff, I don't think it hit the mark. I think that we may have had an advertising group that kind of did some of the same things we as architects do. They don't spend the time to really understand what the public wants and that how we as architects could provide that for them and show the value. Um, you know, they're slick. Um, you know, most of our things are, are, you know, kind of slick and I don't know that the general public uh, understands that. Um, I, the general public thinks that we're a necessary profession. Um, we have been going through in Florida for the last two years of deregulating the architectural profession. We're on the block with a whole slew of others, uh, including our, our interior designers can be licensed in this state. We're one of, I think, four in the country that do it. Uh, the interior designers are on the chopping block. We will likely get off of it. Um, we just got done with our legislative day, um, and it's another place to take leadership. Um, we we have a very active advocacy group at AIA Florida, and uh, we have a legislative day usually in January at the at the absolute latest. It's in February, depending on when the sessions are. And we go we we send we send a whole slew of architects from every community in the state of Florida. You know, this is no little place to meet with our legislators and tell them why the legislation they're uh, uh, intending to put in place may be or may not be a good idea. 
And again, we're very highly respected in the state house in the state of Florida. When they see the architects coming, they really we bring them a a 24 by 36 inch poster uh, every year. We've seen some of the legislators have been around for a while. Got a couple of them framed and hung them. They like them so much. But we do this thing, uh, you know, once a year, and that's part of the leadership thing. But um, I, I think that we have to be able to you know, do what we do as a profession, but be able to get across to the people, um, you know, all the things that are happening technology wise in the profession, in my mind, are really aimed toward the larger firms. Um, you know, we've got, we've got software out now that can give you 1200 variations on a schematic plan. I don't know who has the time to, even the largest firms to study 1200 variations and figure out which works, uh, or which one is, is the best out of all of those. The people who are serving the mom and pops, you know, and a lot of us are that, you know, the entree architect community, a lot of us are smaller firms that are not serving the large corporate uh, giants. So we've got to be able to understand that the clients that we're talking to are not going to understand Part T. They're not going to understand a lot of the a lot of the lingo that we use in our profession that when we, you know, even some engineers don't understand it. So I think that, you know, if AIA really had the opportunity to sit down and really think about how they wanted to set out an ad campaign, they they knock themselves down a couple of levels. Don't look us, don't make us look so elitist. That's the one criticism that we get a lot from clients is that we're elitist. And I think that it's it's getting better. I think that uh, and quite honestly, uh, now that diversity is a much bigger deal um, with AIA and with the professional and with the world in general, I think it's helping. Um, I think the fact that there are more women in the profession, uh, has helped, um, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be doing grassroots, uh, here in, in about three weeks in New Orleans for AIA. Uh, I'm on a discussion panel to talk about, I'm on there with, a, with an architect who is female and is in a wheelchair. I'm, I'm on with a blind architect from San Francisco. Uh, we're going to be discussing how to make the workplace a, a better place for people who are different. And then also how that can help design. Because when you start to have all these people involved and you get a mix of, 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 uh, uh, of uh, sexes and capabilities and races and just the whole gamut, um, you're going to get better design. And I think you're going to reach people uh, a lot easier than we do now. So the, the more this goes on, and you know, I've seen a huge change in, in – uh, I don't want to give my age away, but you probably figured that out already. Um, I'm getting. Or you were taking the drafting course in 1970, so. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to tell you when I was born, so let's (laughs) leave it at that. 74, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The uh, I've been doing this for almost 50 years, uh, and I've seen huge changes in the way offices operate. There's a big difference from when I walked in my first door for an interview and the way it works now. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, businesses are more open. And I think that's a leadership th- type thing, too, is that you, if you're running an office, um, you've got to look at the people that you're bringing in. You want to get bright ones. You know, I try to find people that are smarter than me, which generally is not that tough. Uh, <laughs> but I, I want I definitely want to get people that, you know, I can I can lead them. I can show them how to do things, but I want them to become leaders. You know, you don't become a leader just by being a dictator. You become a leader by making other people leaders. So I think all of those things, you know, combined are are what 
we as architects individually have to do that the AIA as a national organization cannot do. Or is, they might be able to do it, but you know, I think with the changeover year by year, it makes it extremely difficult. Yeah. Now that we have a strategic council, there is some continuity in thought. Things that were done three years ago are still being discussed and moved forward. So hopefully that whole idea will continue and uh, will become a better organization and a better profession for it. Yeah, I, I think I think the answer lies in the story of the individual architect. You were just talking about the the, the panel, the the diversity panel, and right. and and I, I advocate all the time about you know that that you individually by building a stronger, thriving business, and building a strong brand and being able to clearly identify and, and tell your story about who you are and what you do. Um, when we do that with thousands of architects or tens of thousands of architects, that story starts to resonate with the with the public. And I think that that rather than the AIA trying to define who we are, if we are all individually telling that story, that story creates a mosaic and creates you know identifies the the overall idea of who we are and what we do. And if the AIA wants to support that, the AIA can help us learn how to do that better. Help us learn how to build better businesses, how to tell our story better, how to build better brands, um, rather than them trying to tell that story. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you're right, absolutely, uh, in that thinking, and that you know, competition is good, but the competition that is brutal is not good, and that only tears the profession apart, in my opinion. Um, you know, I. I don't mind having projects handed to me. And in fact, a lot of the work I get is word of mouth. Uh, I don't compete for a lot, but uh, what I do compete for, I win my fair share. But when I'm up against other people, I mean, there's certain people I can't compete with because of the way they operate. And I tell clients that right up the front, right up front. But I'm not tearing them down. I just say they've got a different way of practicing than I, than I do. And, you know, you're not picking apples to apples firms in, in who you're wanting to do this. And in the end, it's going to come down to a fee in a lot of cases. Is that they're going to find the lower fee. I mean, I can tell you that I've lost uh, two jobs in the last three years that came down to the fact that I was up against a guy who works out of his house. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of us in the small firms do that. Um, technically, where I live, you're not supposed to be doing that uh, according to uh, the local ordinances. Uh, we're supposed to be in business facilities. But some people can pull it off and uh, – and I've, I've lost those jobs because my fees were twice as high. The amount of overhead is not there, and, you know, you can't fight that. But then at the same time, I don't talk negatively about those people. Um, you know, when when you come into this situation, I think you have to say, um, well, congratulations. You know, tell the client, I wish you a lot of luck. You know, good luck. You know, if anything changes, give me a call back. And, um, you know, this our profession has not been one that likes to share has not been in the past. That's getting better too. Yeah, that's changing. And I think that I mean, Entree Architect is a classic example of that. Um, putting information out there for everybody to see. I mean, it used to be that you get in, you know, architects got in their own little corner, and you know, it was like you're in the third grade taking a test, and you got your arms around the paper, and you <laughs> don't let anybody look over your shoulder. Um, that. That was the way architects were probably up until about the, maybe the 80s, the early 80s. But that has changed since then. 
And, uh, you know, we're starting to share things because I think, again, that will only make the profession stronger. Uh, we want everybody to be at a good level. Um, some are going to be better than others, no, no matter what. You're going to find designers that are better than others, no matter what. You're going to find production people that are better and people in management, too. So uh, I think it's important that we all try to elevate, uh, you know, uh, elevate the boat, get everybody up on, on high water. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. If you work with specifications in your firm, you probably have come across outdated manufacturer specs with confusing notes, products that no longer exist, or even maybe even companies that no longer exist. Maybe you even pay for specifications. Stop. Stop right now. There's a better way to find manufacturer specifications for your project documentation. RCAT. RCAT.com. RCAT is the number one most used website for finding building product information and has a free library of over 1,400 up-to-date accurate specifications written by FCSI, CCS, and AIA professionals based on manufacturer's data. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right specifications for your project and quickly download them in multiple formats for free. That's right, RCAT is completely free. You don't even need to register. Just go to RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. RCAT.com. And start building better content today. Do you remember when you started your architecture firm? Well, maybe you're in the middle of that right now. Maybe you are in the middle of launching your architecture firm. It's not easy, is it? It takes lots of late nights, early mornings, and maybe even the occasional all-nighter. Well, we are crazy busy, so why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. Yep, tax time's coming up. And the best part, FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools that you need when you need them without ever having to learn the ins and the outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free. Free for 30 days, no catch, no credit card. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. To get started, visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. What do you think of when you hear the words payroll and benefits? Payroll and benefits. Does that make your skin crawl? Does it make your spine tingle? Payroll and benefits are hard. It's okay. It's hard, especially when you're a small business like us. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. A couple of more words that might make your skin crawl. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way that we're working today. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does all the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. 
you no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support the show, the Entree Architect podcast, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash Gusto to claim your free three months of payroll processing. That's entrearchitect.com slash Gusto for three months free. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entre Architect community. What about schools, Greg? What, what, do you, what do you think the role of the architectural school or the responsibility rather than the role, what's the responsibility of our architectural schools? And, and are they doing their job uh, to, to help move that boat forward that we're, we're talking about? Well, you know, I, I know I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this, but, um, you know, I, I, I think we have three learned professions in my mind. And I'll put architecture and engineering in, in the same one, but law and medicine. We're probably the three that have the toughest time in, in school and the longest time that you have to serve before you can do your job. Um, law and medicine train their people to be lawyers and doctors. We don't train people in architecture school to be architects. We train them to be to understand architecture with a capital A. And um, my feeling is, is that we really need to have a restructuring in the education system. Uh, I have I have approached uh, several educators, uh, one an associate dean, and talked to them about the fact that, uh, you know, we if we're going to make this a better profession, we've got to have their support and we've got to help to have them start to train architects instead of just getting people to understand architecture with a capital A. Quite honestly, I think that's why a lot of people go elsewhere from the profession. You know, we graduate a lot more than actually come and work into the profession um, because they're not trained for that. You know, they're, you know, you spend five years, four or five years, depending on where you go to school, maybe seven or eight, um, heavily in design. But that's not the profession. The profession has three tracks. It has design, production, and management. And, uh, you know, if you like, I can expound on, on my little theories about the way the school should be operating. Yeah, I would, I would love that. I, I, because I think we all come out of architecture school, right? not everybody, but many of us come out of architecture school um, with the idea that, that, or you get into architecture school because you love art and you love architecture and you want to be a designer, right? Very few of us get into architecture in order to be a part of the management of an architecture firm or even the production end of it. Some of it, you know, some of us love that end, end of it, but I think so many of us, because we're creative people and we're, we have that artist mentality that we go in wanting to be designers and we come out being, you know, trained as designers. And so there's, there's two thirds of the profession that's required to be part of what we do. We have no idea how to do that. And, and I think that many of the schools, when I've approached the school uh, administrators, they've come back to me and said that, well, that's not our job. That's the job of the internship program. That's the job of the of the of the firms themselves to be teaching those things. We're not supposed to be teaching those things. We're teaching architects how to think, right? That's what I. That's the that's the the response I get. And so, if if that's not working, how would you change that, Greg? 
Well, I think that what we really have to do is that, uh, you know, NCARB has now got a program where they're pilot testing and getting people with licenses after seven or eight years worth of education. And part of that has got an internship, but it's a small one. In, in my mind, uh, I'm going to be real interesting to see what happens with our insurance rates in the next 10 years, um, if this really catches on. Uh, and, and that's not to degrade the people coming out of school with those degrees. Um, right now, I think they're picking some really smart people to be doing that. Uh, but I think in the long run, jeez, um, I say I've been doing this for almost 50 years. I learn something new every day. And, and I think we're, we're definitely a profession that you've got to be continually learning. So the restructure of the education, um, I would think that, you know, we probably have to go to seven or eight years uh, as a mandatory. And then, you know, you know, start tracks. You know, maybe you take the first three years the way we've always done it. You're up doing all-nighters, you know, doing design work, and you get an understanding of design. Uh, a lot of schools don't teach history any longer. Uh, architectural history uh, in the undergraduate programs. You've got to be in graduate school to do it. That I don't understand. If you're teaching architecture with a capital A, how can you not teach architectural history? Um, after those three years, I think if you want to be a designer, that you need to present a portfolio to a faculty group and let them decide whether or not they think you've got the capability to do it. Generally, after three years of being in design, they're going to know who's got the real potential to be a designer. Not in all cases, but but in a lot of them. And then at that point, you know, you give an option of either you have a production training or a management training. I mean, they're all they're extremely valuable in in firms. Once you start to get over ten people, you need all three of those of those skills to be run by a, you know a, an individual or a couple of individuals. So why not give that training and background? Uh, you know, part of the management can also be marketing. But then you would concentrate for the remainder of your education on on those aspects, and you know you might even be able to do this in a six year program. But I think that if if you start to train people to be architects. Um, Again, we're gonna, you're going to see more value because those guys that are in management now are going to get real estate training. They're going to get financial training. You know, there's a whole slew of us that probably don't know how to put together a pro forma for a project. And you know, a lot of clients, when you get mom and pop developers coming in, that say, "Hey, you know, I got this piece of property and I want to build. I want to build some apartments on it." Um, you know, I, I think I want to have this many, but they really don't have any idea where they're going with it. If you can prepare a pro forma that demonstrates to them what their cash flow is going to be, um, how many years it's going to take to start turning a profit on those and how many units they can actually build, that becomes extremely valuable. Uh, and then you help them go to the bank for the financing to do those types of things. So I think, and then from a production standpoint, uh, which was always my strong suit, and probably because I just love to draw, um, knowing how to really put together a, uh, a, a set of drawings, and it's not just the detailing, uh, code compliance, all those types of things that we're expected to learn on the job is drawing back the profession, because on the job, firms have to make a profit or you don't stay in business. And if you're having to spend a tremendous amount of time training people, the things that we think they should have gotten at least some kind of a cursory uh, review of in their education, uh, you're not gonna make those profits. And I, and I think this is also a, a direct correlation 
if we start to graduate people in those three tracks, I believe our fees go up. Because now you're showing expertise and you can demand that. I mean, there, there are law firms where, you know, a lawyer only makes $200 an hour, which, you know, we've got a lot of architects who are billing out more at more than $200 an hour. But there are law firms that are charging over $1,000 an hour. I only know of a couple of firms where the principals are, and it's the principals. And let's face it, the principals really aren't doing the work. They do the schmoozing up front. They get the work. They'll, they may be the designers, but it's always handed off to someone else. Those are the large firm guys. I don't know many small firms where you've got a thousand dollar an hour billing rate. So I think those, those three tracks, if the education system would start looking at more at, at training architects instead of just teaching architecture, um, we will do ourselves a whole big favor in doing that. Yeah, I, I agree that, that schools should be training architects to be architects. And I, and I believe that those three tracks are equally important, design, production, and Absolutely. management. But my concern is, is if schools did shift to a model like that, um, you have a, a very large population of the profession who um, are small firms and sole practitioners who want to remain small firms and practice sole practitioners. Um, and that if they were forced to take one track, they would actually lose the value and the education of the other two tracks. Well, uh, not necessarily. Um, I think that if, um, and it might take people a lot smarter than me to figure this out, and maybe that's the problem, the reason why it really hasn't gone that far and going in that direction. The designer could still have electives that would cross those other two paths. Um, you know, the average the average architectural firm is four people. Um, so yes, I understand exactly what you're saying. And and you know, I've been a small firm practitioner now for 24 years. So half of my career has been right here where I am today. And um, had I not worked for very large firms. I probably would not have the skills that I have today. I very seriously doubt that I'd have FAIA after my name. Uh, the things that I learned in those firms and working for them, and, and I thought I got a, a pretty decent education at Ohio State. We were we were part of the College of Engineering, so we had a very strong um, emphasis on the engineering side of uh, of design. Uh, that's changed a bit uh, since I was there, for the good, not for the bad. It's gone for the good. Uh, Bob Livesey, who used to run uh, Ohio State, was just a tremendous guy that, that brought in changes and, and made the, the university work. There's some exciting stuff happening out on the West Coast right now. I read an article in, uh, I think it was Ar Arconnect, that, uh, that talked about uh, a, new, uh, a new system that's being, or a new structure that's being set up in a college on the West Coast. And somewhat similar to what we're saying, not quite as emphatic as how yeah. we're, we're saying it, but the person that's running that school has, has been a practitioner. He knows what the profession needs, and he's trying to implement that in his school. If, you know, Deborah Burke running Yale right now, you know, she's got a real nice firm. She's done really nice work over her career. She started out small and, you know, just grew it because of her capabilities. Um, I think, you know, having, having practitioners that run uh, universities is, is a good idea. You know, and Yale's been pretty good with that, you know, having Philip Johnson, Cesar Pelli, Robert Stern, all those types of people running that university, I think you get a little broader education than you might in some schools. Yeah. You know, I think whether it's the AIA or whether it's the schools, um, it, 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 it is the 
requirement, and here I go back to the individual architect, it is the requirement that however we find that information and gain that knowledge of design and production and management, we must. If we need to be successful as architects, we need to have knowledge in all three of those tracks. Um, and if the schools are not going to do it, and many of us are no longer in school, there are many students who are in school now, if you are in school right now, go yeah. over to the business school and get some education. So yeah. if, whatever it takes, get some knowledge and basic fundamentals of business um, because it will help you. It will help you uh, succeed as an architect, whether you work for a big firm like Gensler or whether you're gonna start your own firm as a sole practitioner, that knowledge will make you more valuable. Absolutely. I have, uh, I had a, a really oddity um, sitting on the AIA Florida board. We go to one university a year to have our uh, one of our quarterly board meetings. And we were at the, the University of Florida last year. And we sat down and had dinner with, uh, with a, uh, quite a group of students, uh, mostly third year. And uh, I sat down with a young lady who told me she wanted to become a building official but she wanted an architecture degree first. And I, I was just blown away because that's something you all, <laughs> being a little bit of a code geek myself, um, I've never heard that come out of any student that they wanted to be a building official. And uh, the schools really aren't prepared to teach her that. And then that was her complaint was that she'd like to know more about the building codes than what was being taught. Um, and I, I, I encouraged her, I said, go talk to the dean, you know, tell them what's on your mind. And uh, I said, chances are you probably won't get very far, but don't take that as a stopping point. Um, you've put a thought in his head. Maybe, maybe it, it might take a couple of years or so, but maybe they'll, they'll bring in as, as an important part of their professional practice course. They'll talk more about codes or they'll find a place to put it or an emphasis in design that you need to refer. You know, we had to do it at Ohio State. We all, they, back in those days, we were still dealing, dealing with the UBC. Um, you know, we were always told we had to comply with the UBC, but I'll guarantee you that 95% of us had dead-end corridors and <laughs> egress paths that weren't, weren't quite right. But um, I think that that can be effective. If, you, if you're a student and you've got a desire of something that you want to do in the profession, talk to the people that run the school and, you know, explain to them that, you know, I like this and so do a few other people. We'd like to see more with it. And I think I think good administrators will take that to heart and start to figure out a way to come to yes on those types of things. I think I think that's that's what's really important is everybody coming to yes and, and finding a uh, uh, a compromise or a uh, solution to uh, to a problem. That's what we do as architects. But you've got to ask for it. You you've got to you've got to be the leader. You've got to be the one who goes out and says, "I need this." Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Craig, before we wrap things up here, I wanted to uh, to ask you the question that I ask everybody here. Um, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Well, I think there's, uh, and they kind of go hand in hand, uh, what we talked about earlier. I think getting involved in the community that you live uh, is vitally important. And probably smart to meet a couple of bankers and meet a couple of lawyers and, uh, you know, people who are movers and shakers in your community and, and just get to know them. You know, you don't have to be hitting them up for work. The work will end up coming. But if you get involved and show that you, that you can bring value to their organization, they're going to turn around and compensate you by 
referring you, hiring you, or you know, helping you in some way uh, to, to grow your firm and to be more competent. And at the same time, you can you can use them as mentors. You know, if you're talking to a banker and you don't understand certain aspects of how to financially run your business, use them as a mentor. Um, you know, say, you know, I, I, I scratched my head over this. What can I do to make it better? Uh, and I'm sure that uh, a lot of them would be more than happy to uh, to give you a hand on it. So I, th- I don't think there's anything more important than uh, connections in this business. It really is all about connections. You can be the most talented architect in the world, but if you don't know people, um, you're probably going to suffer a little bit in, uh, in, in getting work done and getting, you know, well, getting hired, first of all, and then getting it completed. But um, I would say, I would say make the connections. That, to me, I think is one of the most important things you can do. Yeah, I agree. When I spoke with Gene Cohn of Cohn, Peterson, yeah. Fox a few, few months ago, um, that's how they built KPF, yep. right? One handshake at a time. Gene Cohn is a master at that. I listened to that. I listened to that interview. I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, Gene comes across. I, I don't know him personally. Uh, I'm sure I'll probably run into him at a fellow's dinner or something in the future. But uh, he is exactly the type of guy that you want in the management and marketing end of your business because he's personable. Uh, he, I didn't, I didn't hear him using thirty-five dollar words. Yeah. He talked. He talked like a human being, and that's what architects have to learn how to do. If yeah. you. You're going to drag the business in. That's a good way to do it. But yeah. that was a phenomenal interview. Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And he was, he was a designer that recognized that there was somebody who was better at that and right. that, that he had other strengths. And so, yes, he has the influence on design and he's done some design at KPF, but his focus was the business, right? Getting the next job and running the business. Right. Um, and, and he just let his partners take care of the rest. And, and uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, this man's name is Gregory Burke. I appreciate you for being here, Greg. Um, your firm's name is Gregory John Burke architect. The website is burkearchitects.com. So you can go check out everything that Greg's doing. And, and if you want to reach out to him, click the little connect button and, and, uh, send him an email and say, Hey, I heard you on Entree Architect podcast. Um, also if you're not a member of the Entree Architect Facebook group, Greg is in there all the time contributing to the conversations over there. It's a private group for, for architects only, architects and architecture students. And so uh, if you're an architect or an architecture student, you can go to entrearchitect.com slash group and you can request membership. And uh, we have a lot of really active conversations in there. Somebody posts a question, we get 30, 40, 50, 100 comments on those questions and, and it's a private group. So it's only our architects talking to other architects. And so, uh, so I, I invite you to come join us, Greg, this was a great conversation. It, it was a very important conversation. And so, uh, I really appreciate your time for spending with uh, your time spending here with me and uh, sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect podcast. Thanks Mark. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I think this is an important topic and I'm glad to be part of it. This is episode 311. If you'd like to access the show notes or share this episode with a friend, the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 311. Please share that link. That helps us grow the, the podcast. It helps us grow the community. It helps the small firm architects grow the profession and thrive. So entrearchitect.com slash episode 311. 
Thank you very much. Enrollment for the Entree Architect Startup Mastermind is closing tonight, February 21st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. That's midnight tonight, February 21st. If you just recently launched your small firm or if you're working hard at planning to launch within the next 12 months, then you are a startup architect and we want to help you get started. We want to make it a little bit easier for you. We have something very special to help you get launched and put you on the right track for a successful far firm far into the future. The Entree Architect Startup Mastermind is for you. It's not just another peer group. This is our 14th mastermind group here at Entree Architect, but this one is a very special one. Not only will you become a member of a professional peer group, exclusive and dedicated to people like you, startup architects, you will have access to our full membership of experienced entrepreneur architects in our member forum. You can have access to them. You'll have special guests and support that's built just for you. Our goal is to get you launched with success so that you can be the best architect you can be. You can build a strong profession and better serve the world by building a stronger business. So that's our goal. We want to help you. And as a very special bonus to incentivize you to join us and to help you get started only for Entree Architect Startup Mastermind, we put together a launch kit, the Entree Architect Startup Launch Kit. It's worth more than $1,400 and it's free to the startup members who join this group. So go to entrearchitect.com slash startup to learn more. And if you're not a startup architect, which is most of you, well then help us spread the word and share that link with a friend, entrearchitect.com slash startup. You startup architects enroll right now before registration closes tonight at 11.59 p.m. Hope to see you there. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening and have a fantastic week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it.
Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.